Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. Well, hello again, friends, neighbors, and those on the periphery of the Internet out there. Rick Wagner's show here, trying to get it right. And we are getting it right, for the most part. Seldom wrong, always certain. We're here at KNZZ 1100, and if you're on the FM dial 92.7, and you could be listening on KGLN at 980, and on their FM dial 101.3, and some other places, and obviously the Internet. And I appreciate the good audience we have on the Internet. Also, you can listen to the show as a podcast. Uh, you can pull it up about anywhere. I'm trying to do some more sort of bonus stuff out there. And you can get it on Amazon or iTunes or several other places. And I think Spotify and whatnot, the Rick Wagner Show. So I appreciate that. It's been a tough week. No way around it. I mean, we had the ongoing things in Israel and even more details come out about the really the demonic things that were done uh, by Hamas uh, in Israel to the citizens of Israel, all of them, uh, no real differentiation between men, women, children, age, anything like that. If you can look at that and think that there's not some real dark force at work in the world, then I don't know what to say. I mean, what, how do you explain that? And the moral equivalency, of course, I think we all agree that are listening to this show, or at least the vast majority of us, that there isn't a moral equivalency for Israel responding and essentially defending itself and taking retribution in a way that will discourage future attacks. I mean, that's one of the things you want. Uh, it's called deterrence. We don't really understand that word anymore in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, certainly not under this administration, that you deter things by strength and power, not by equivocating and appeasement. But the Israelis understand that, and we seem to be holding them back. But there's no moral equivalency, and no one wants to see innocence of any stripe being injured in war. But that, unfortunately, is war. And the fact that the Hamas individuals, and soon to be Hezbollah, uh, have so little regard for their own people that they would put them in harm's way this way. And that's what they're doing. I mean, think about what happened in the Gaza, cities surrounding the Gaza and towns and some of these villages, essentially, uh, around Gaza that were in Israel that were attacked. What, uh, what was the end game there? They didn't take any territory, not holding on to anything. They didn't seize any land or resources or anything like that. It was just pure, pure terror. And you have to know that when you retreat back into the population that you emerge from, that there's going to be damage there. That if somebody responds, there are going to be people who are not responsible for that initial outrage that are going to be injured. So the answer is, you don't care. There really isn't another explanation about Hamas's ideas about other people in the Gaza that are not part of Hamas. They don't care. They're just human shields as far as they're concerned. Uh, 
And this has been the, the tactic of these organizations for a long time. I mean, you don't build missile bases and headquarters for your higher-ups under schools and hospitals and places of that nature and think much of the civilians around you. If you want to call, see, Hamas, that's not an army. That's just a mob and hateful filled mob. It's not much of an army. And one of the reasons you know that is because they don't want to confront the real army, Israeli Defense Force. They've not had a great record when they run into those guys. Uh, they don't march into battle against the Israeli Defense Force or anybody really. They skulk around and wait for nobody to be there and attack innocents. It's just a criminal organization that has a creed associated with a religion. And it is vicious. So it's very difficult, I think, to hear some of the things that went on. And then, of course, we had this terrific shooting in Maine. It's just horrible. Uh, I, I don't think any of us, and it's probably a good thing, can get inside someone's head that has the idea that this time is going to solve their problems, no matter what they are. Um, I understand that some people's... Uh, Mental operation is so deranged and kinked up that they think they're doing something maybe other than what we see. I don't know. And quite frankly, I don't care. Uh, these people need to be eliminated. Uh, the thing that I wish most about that incident was that when the character came to the door barefoot, I might add, uh, and had an AR and raised it to his shoulder, that someone else would have been in there, an armed citizen, and would have taken him immediately out. That is, that should have happened. He shouldn't have been there to begin with, sure. But that should have happened. And now instead of getting some answers to these questions like what's happening in society that all these things are coming about, we're going to get calls for gun control. Again. That's all, and that's all we're going to get. That's all the Democrats can ever offer. Gun control and new ways to take firearms away from people who haven't done anything. That's the way. Or, create new crimes such that you can't have firearms. You know, the uh, the idea that, uh, you know, that you can have a red flag law, that's not really a crime, and people can have their weapons seized. And my understanding from looking at some of this stuff is uh, even if that gets withdrawn, pretty hard to get your stuff back. And I've spoken on this in the past. I think it's a dangerous situation. Not only do I think it's it's easily made unconstitutional uh, the way it would be done. Obviously, we see people testing the boundaries of the Second Amendment all over the place. And that lunatic in New Mexico, the governor down there, trying to originally trying to bar you know ban concealed and open carry, and you know in a couple of counties down there, that got slapped down. Now she's come back, you know, and tried to create these safe areas. If she wants to think of it that way. Uh, this is not a solution to the problem unless you think the problem is having armed citizens and people other than the government having any kind of uh, access to force, which seems to be what's going on the mind of some of these people. And self-defense, which is what's happening with the vast majority of people who want to have firearms, and we've been selling tens of millions of firearms this uh, last decade, to many of whom, to people who have never owned one before or who never thought they would own one. I mean, gun dealers will tell you that. They have people coming in all the time and said, I never thought I'd have to buy a gun. 
But getting those out of everybody's hands uh, seems to be the, way, the solution. And, of course, it's not. But there's many things to solve here. I, I know when I talk to a lot of you folks out there that uh, it feels like we're sort of in a, a blender <laughs> where there are so many ingredients swirling around um, and we're swirling around with them. It's hard to to get ourselves grounded enough to see what's going on. But uh, taken from a you know the ten thousand foot uh, bird's eye view, is it is a, a clash of civilizations, and not just civilizations between Islam and Europe and this and that. I mean, we have sort of a growing some other kind of civilization or movement in our own country. Uh, we have people who are seem to be uh, enemies of the country in which they live. Uh, people who have really given nothing and want everything. And we just have to watch television. Now, I've often said that watching television is, can give you a very skewed viewpoint because the business of news, such as it is, is to bring you things that shock and Sometimes, you know, you find abhorrent because people will watch that. And we tend to see things that happen all over the United States, and we see them enough to where they feel like they're happening in our neighborhood. Unfortunately, they're starting to happen in a lot of neighborhoods. So we have to get some kind of viewpoint on these things. And one of the first places to start is, of course, education. The schools are where this is going. Look at the universities. The one good thing about about what's been going on is the sort of mask has dropped away again about what's being taught and the attitudes in these universities. I think that's helpful. We're going to talk a little bit about school boards, local elections, and how important those are. Next segment, we'll talk to you soon. Hey, everybody, thanks for sticking with us. We are the second segment here. And I have another candidate here on the line for a school board. And I'm going to have I have those because it's such an important job anymore. I don't have to tell you guys out there what why, if you just have to look around about what's going on. So uh, we have a school board candidate here where I'm at in uh, District 51 in Mesa County. It's most of Mesa County. And uh, it's uh, Cindy Scala. Cindy, uh, thanks a lot for joining the program today. You're sure welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, well, we're uh, happy somebody's going to jump into this. Uh, I, You know, it doesn't pay anything. so <laughs> And it's a lot of bother. So a person either... Uh, is uh, hopelessly lost or completely unhinged, usually, that wants these jobs. But uh, we need people now that are, you know, focused more on the idea of education. And by education, we don't mean indoctrination. So uh, that's why it's so important to vote. And in Colorado here, you know, your votes have gone out. Some of you received them. Don't let them lay around. Make sure they get submitted. So, Cindy, uh, I know a little bit that I think you were a teacher here in this school district for like uh, 35 years. Is that about right? Yes. Yeah. And what did you teach mainly? What what grades? So, mainly I I, um, I taught first grade and second grade. I spent um, about 10 years teaching second grade and about 17 years teaching first grade. Yeah, well, that's, kind of, that's always kind of challenging. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. uh, right up there with Cats, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when you decided to run for school board, uh, what motivated you? Usually there's something, you know, I mean, there's all, everybody has the same kind of answer. Oh, I want to see people educated and stuff, which is good. But usually there's some precipitating event or 
something that was going on that really nudged you into deciding to get in the political arena, which is not easy for anybody. You're absolutely right. What nudged me to get in was um, my concern over where we're at as a district with our our academic test scores, where we're at with um, our college readiness score, and actually where we're at with our declining um, college or high school graduation rate. Those three issues really made me um, feel like I was the person that um, for the job, so to speak, because of the knowledge that I have and and my background, and and I feel like I'm I can just jump right in and um, dive in and see what we can do to bring up those test scores. Well, we could teach kids something. That would probably be a good good step. And we could try and go back to some mathematics that made sense and not various incarnations of new mathematical ideas to uh, try and teach people things that everybody used to just have no problem with to begin with. Uh, what do you think yeah. about uh, here in this, and this happens in a number of school districts in the area, I mean, we have a declining enrollment situation. Part of that is because I, I think where we're at now is, uh, you know, the cost of living here is such that uh, housing and so forth that it's a little harder for families with children to to live here. Secondly, I think there's just not as many children uh, that are out there for education. And uh, do you think that p- creates a problem in the district? It absolutely does, and those are are both, you know, serious issues. Um, We can look at how many five-year-olds and four-year-olds and three-year-olds, so to speak, that are already here in our county and kind of anticipate um, what those numbers are going to be when the students enter school, and those numbers are going to continue to decline, unfortunately. They say it's about a wash with the number of people leaving and the people moving in, but once again, like you said earlier, it is a, a higher cost of living here as well. So declining enrollment is a huge issue within our district. Well, it's interesting that we have declining enrollment, but rising uh, costs associated with the district. I mean, this year the assessment kicked in for the last uh, thing that people passed. I don't know why. And uh, now we're building an enormous high school here and where we're at at a per square foot cost that I can't quite figure out. You know, it seems like that like every kind of governmental institution is that it's all about growth and turf and employees. And the idea of the point of what they're supposed to be doing seems to start drifting away. Yes. And in our district, we have, you know, several older buildings. Um, for when we had, you know, more students. But we, we've lost so many students through the years. We actually have, you know, several older buildings with um, small populations within them as well that we, we are going to have to take a look at and to see if we want our money to continue to go to buildings or if we want our money to go to students instead. Well, you, I think you saw what happened here when... One of the middle schools, uh, they tried to close. And, uh, I, I cut, and you know, I mean, people went berserk, even though the fact that the enrollment was very much down. I mean, you're going to re, you're going to run into opposition for that. And yet at the same time, as you say, you have a choice with money. Do you, do you maintain buildings that have low functionality or low return on investment? If you're looking at the, the number of kids and what's happening there versus putting it back into direct educational types of things that, that we need. I mean, I was getting something the other day at one of the local places, and uh, they wanted to know if I wanted to donate for school supplies, for School District 51 or this or that. 
And, you know, I, I constantly think about how much money everybody's paying, and yet it never seems to be enough. You know, it's it's never enough. And every solution to the problem of low test scores and poor performance, absenteeism, and, you know, in some cases just uh, disruptive behavior at some of the places, it's always money. You know, I'm like I said this in the past, I they say money's the root of all evil because I, I'm starting to think that might be true because it seems like the more money we throw at problems, the worse they get. So how do you feel about the budget? Well, you know, that's, that is one complicated thing that we've got going on with our budget. There are so many factors um, that go into the budget and you know, we've had so much um, federal money coming in as a result of COVID, and those ESSER funds are, are you know, they're finishing. We will not receive them anymore. There was actually staff hired that was a result, a direct result of that funding. We have that budget stabilization factor that's um, sunsetting. That will not be a part of it as, as well, but yet we're told that our schools will be fully funded, but no one knows what that looks like. And, you know, when you look at our budget, there's there's not a lot of places to trim there. Um, but, you know, you can't help but, like, once again, look at all of these older buildings that we have. We have a, a committee doing a, a, a look at every single building within our district and determining the needs of the grounds, the building, everything from carpets to walls to roof. And that report's supposed to come in in March. And I'm really apprehensive as to what that, what kind of a picture that's going to show us as to how much more money we would need to pour into some of these older buildings as well. What do you think about the idea? And I know this is going to be impossible with the union, but, you know, a merit-based pay structure, you know, where you actually have, you know, performance by classroom or instructor, and that is a major part of their salary adjustment. And people that are doing well, you make that a much more attractive position. People can make more money if they're good teachers, and if they're not, eh, maybe they find something else to do. Uh, that that seems to be something that the the unions, uh, you know, throw themselves in front of, uh, you know, to or chain themselves to like a bulldozer uh, in a subdivision. <laughs> what do you yeah. think about that? And you know. You know, I, I agree with you. Um, a lot of um, educators uh, term it as the golden handcuff, so to speak. And, you know, if, if teachers were allowed to perform extremely well and to be paid for performing extremely well, then the salaries would go up. And, you know, it would just automatically, you know, make sure that we had the best and brightest in front of our kids every single day. Research has shown the number one factor that to bring up test scores is a highly qualified teacher. So, man, it, it you know, I don't know if you and I can solve the problem of, um, you know, what what's happened as a result of golden handcuffs and unions and keeping, you know, the wages down. But I really think that public education would be in a totally different situation as with teacher pay if if that wasn't a, a huge factor. Well, it's, it's it, you know, it goes without saying that, I mean, I, I've, I've had a number of people work for me over the years, and if you're paying everybody the same or pretty close to the same, uh, and one person's doing a really good job and the next person is yeah, maybe not so good, maybe not a good job at all, and they're getting either the same or 
pretty good money. It's or the same money. It's very difficult to keep the the better person motivated. And yeah, to, you know what? You know, at some point, what's the point? I mean, we're, we're, we'd like to think people are altruistic, but it's hard to maintain that when the guy working next to you is doing half your work and getting paid the same. So it, it is difficult. Uh, and I hope we can address that. And you know, I know we have charter schools in the area, and they've been attracting a lot of students out of the system. What do you feel about charter schools? You know, I think that there is a need at this point in time for charter schools. I feel that parents uh, kind of felt like they lost their voice, and they wanted to be more involved in their students' education, or um, as a result of the pandemic, they became aware of certain things that were going on in the classroom that they wanted to make sure their student wasn't right. um, participating in. And I, I don't think that we're, there's we're a thing wrong of, with We're going to run out of time here, Cindy, so I'm just going to say, what's your website real quick? Cindy4kids.com. That's the number four. Okay. Cindy4kids.com. All, right. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh rest of you hang on. Hi, folks. Thanks for sticking with us here. Still Rick Wagner getting it right here on KNZ and KGLN. I enjoyed that uh, interview with uh, Cindy Scala about uh, running for a school board position here where I'm at for a couple of reasons. One is that we want to have good candidates everywhere who have at least some kind of values that have to do with educating kids. And the other thing is just to try and keep everybody focused on this idea that we have to take back control of our schools. And like I said earlier, if you wonder why... Just take a look at what's going on on the college campuses. Though kids did not just show up there without having a little background that made them susceptible to this kind of radical ideology. They get schooled, no pun intended there, I guess, from a very early age now. Anybody that's probably over 40 years old or 45 years old has a very, I think, incorrect viewpoint of what goes on in schools these days. Primary school, middle school, high school. And it's natural. We all base our opinions about things on our own experiences. I mean, we have to. What other experiences do we have? Unless we've done some studying of it and read some sources that we really trust and, and help mold our ideas. So our ideas about this stuff, even when we take our experiences and try and say, okay, this is how that was. And so if they radicalized it, this is what it would be like. I don't think we really have any idea of how radical things have become from the very beginning. I just don't think we, I, I don't think anymore that we have any sense of that. I think that as bad as we imagine it, it's probably a little worse. So the only way that we can get back in control of this is to take back the control of the classroom from the educational establishment and put it back where it always used to be, which is pretty much with parents that set the agenda, or at least the approve of the agenda, that is put before them by the administration and the school board. And when we 
quit paying attention to who's on the school boards, just like we've quit paying attention to who's on our city councils and other areas just like that. We invite this kind of penetration of radical ideologies because it makes it easy. It may be pretty hard to convince you that versions of socialism and some of these other things are a good idea. But it's not really that hard to convince somebody that's 11 about those kinds of things. So, of course, you're going to end up doing that. You're going to to go at that is because it's the low-hanging fruit of indoctrination. Or you argue with somebody who has a lot of life experience and a whole different way of thinking about things based on reality and, and lived experience, as I've said, when you can get somebody who doesn't know any better and in a position that they are told they should pay attention to. I mean, they're told to listen to their teachers, listen to the educators and so forth because they're supposed to be imparting knowledge. So what what a great opportunity that presents if you want to do this kind of propagandizing. Especially when we're just sort of unfocused on it. Now, not so much right now, but we have been for a long time. Not that high a priority. We just assumed things were going okay, yeah, the kids were turning a little dumber, they couldn't do uh, math and uh, science scores, it's so hot, all this kind of stuff. And we really thought we needed to do something about it, but we just didn't really come at it very hard. And now we look around, wake up, as it were, and see that it's been a lot worse than we possibly could have imagined. And it's not only that children are not getting a good education, but the education that they are receiving is tilted towards certain ways of thinking about things in the world. It's not education to make them better, oh, let's just say, better examples of sorting mechanism in their little heads to know what makes sense and what doesn't. They're not given those skills. I mean, it's important to think about it in the, in the terms of everyday life. If you don't have any experience or any education in taking a look at your profit and loss column at your farm or your business or whatever and getting a sense of if you're making money or losing money and how much you need to break in, bring in rather, uh, if if none of that is familiar to you, you you haven't been taught how to do it, then how do you operate your business, your life, or whatever? You don't have the instruction manual. And so if the instruction manual is changed, you don't know the difference because you've not seen the other one. So if the history of the United States is one of uh, horrific uh, oppression, racism, uh, stealing, whatever the kind of crazy things we get out there is what you're being taught, and you don't have any opposing viewpoint or any access to one, you'll know the difference. Especially when you live in a, a relatively sheltered environment. 
And let's be honest, is we have tried very hard as a society to consistently try and make the environments that our children exist in safer, more luxurious, less work, all the kinds of things that we thought would be nice to have in our childhood if we get rid of them. And this goes back to the whole, you know, the fourth turning thing we talk about, where the gener- each generation generates the next one with a certain set of problems that are reflective back to the generation before. You know, you have the generation, let's use the example that's often used, our World War II generation that came back with their experiences in the Depression and World War II itself and emphasized the work that they felt they needed to do to build a viable economy, having seen the world go to heck in a handbasket. They understood that there had to be strong institutions because they saw what happened when there wasn't any. They understood that you had to have a strong economy because they saw what it looked like when you didn't. And so they created this environment. And at the same time, they'd been through literally practically hell itself for some of these folks that had been through World War II. And they didn't want their kids to have to suffer that same way. And they naturally wanted to make life easier for them. So they did. And then the next generation is further removed from the reasons that the institutions and law and those kinds of things were created. So they lose track of that. And after a couple of these turnings of generations, 50 years, 60 years passes, and nobody really is in touch with the reason that oftentimes these institutions and ways of doing things were created. So they can't possibly evaluate them well. And it's exacerbated by the fact that they're not being taught why they were instituted. Or if they're being taught something about why they're instituted, it's from a very slanted position and not a positive one. If you really look at some of the media out there, they portray much of America as though it were Mississippi in 1951 in terms of race relations and the whole outlook on things. And I frankly don't think that there were were plenty of people in Mississippi in 1951 that probably didn't think like that. But this is where they try and place things, that this is where we're at. It's, It's unbelievable, and it's very difficult for us, who know better, to imagine that you can convince people that that's what's going on. But it is what's happening. People pulling statues down out there about generals they know nothing about. Sometimes they pulled, they were pulling statues down of people who really were sort of on their side and they didn't even know who they were. They no longer have connection with their own history. Now, we have many people in the country now that don't have our shared history. I think that I heard where in California, uh, one out of three individuals in California was not born in the United States. I also read somewhere this week that the number of 
people it was born, I don't know if I talked about this or not, uh, in the United States last year was the same as the number of immigrants. So we produced natural-born citizens, literally, at a rate that wasn't greater than the number of illegal immigrants that came into this country. This isn't saying anything about individuals. Some of those individuals are probably just fine. Some of them are probably terrible. We don't know the difference. We have no sorting mechanism now. None whatsoever. And the fact that we don't have any sorting mechanism just doesn't make any sense if you apply it to anything else. Let's take apples. If you just go out and just shake the tree and everything that falls out of the apple tree, you just bring in and try and eat, you're going to have, and this is a phrase you probably never heard before, you're going to have some bad apples. (laughs) And maybe if you would have sorted them out before you brought them in, it would have been a better thing. I mean, these are just like the most basic things in the world that you would think people would grasp onto, but individuals will argue against it. And the fact that they'll argue against it tells you how disconnected they are from the real world and how things actually work. And then other things show up out there that send you these little messages. I'm not going to talk about this, uh, what's going on in... Israel and Gaza today, uh, you get plenty of that. We mentioned this horrific shooting and this lunatic in Maine. I mean, that's that sort of speaks for itself, doesn't it? But there are other things out there that <laughs> kind of are uh, kind of are troubling on a, a level that you never thought you'd see. For instance, I have a story here, and this is up on the website at therickwagnershow.com. Where the Department of Justice now, because you can't get police officers, sheriff's deputies, police officers, people like that, because in most places they don't want to be them, be there, because they don't get any respect, they're not supported, they're in danger, they're in danger both from the people they're trying to apprehend and they're in danger from the people that run the governments in the areas they're at. So, what kind of person thinks that's a great job now? Someone who's very altruistic or someone that probably shouldn't have the job. And the Department of Justice made a recommendation last week that various places should relax the standards that they have for hiring police officers. Now, I've talked about this before. I mean, you see this coming. They said that it would be okay to hire people who've committed isolated crimes, isolated crimes. You know, if they're not career criminals, it's okay if they're police officers and sheriff's deputies. Really? Well, what what kind of idea is that? It says a lot. Tells a story on its own, doesn't it? I mean, we have things that don't make any sense at all and yet tell a story in sort of a, you get the feeling of it, like, you know, this is crazy, but then I, but I understand how it fits into the crazy society. For instance, uh, the prediction is, uh, some of the hottest, uh, names for boys, baby boys in 2024 will be names like Jade and Rose. I don't mean like, uh, R-O-W-S Rose. I mean R-O-S-E. 
Jade and Rose. This is a prediction that they're they're saying these are going to be. And then some of the names that were are thought to be non-binary, so that they're not specifically boys' names or or girls' names. And and we have always had some of those, uh, you know, Morgan, for instance, or something like that. But not for the same reason. This is sort of uh, to make you know make people more comfortable that they're not you know identified by their gender. <laughs> oh Lord, I just every time I say something like that, it just gets a little crazier sounding. And those kinds of things all point to where we're headed. So you folks out there have got to just keep focusing on two things. Making sure that the national elections are, are high on your priority. Do what you can. We'll see how well they get run. Um, and the second thing is, is I just, I know I preach to you all the time, but please focus on your local elections and your local public servants, assuming they are public servants. Because all of these nut jobs, or most of these nut jobs in Washington or your state capitals, did not appear out of nowhere like they were sprung from the head of Zeus. They started someplace, and a lot of them started in communities just like yours, and maybe even in yours. And it wasn't until that they're well on their way that anybody realized what was going on because people just didn't pay enough attention. All right, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Mike, about uh, the new speaker, Mike Johnson. It's funny, I've known a couple of Mike Johnsons, and both of them were pretty good guy, so it's interesting, from Louisiana. Now, everybody was pretty surprised at him because nobody really heard of him before. And I was trying to think if I'd heard much of him before, and I'd, I'd like to kid myself into thinking I probably had, but I don't think so. I was very impressed by his uh, speech when he was uh, once he took the podium. I did some looking around uh, about him and was pleasantly surprised. Not only as a constitutional lawyer, but he was also a talk show host, a radio talk show host. So, you know, that goes up in my mind a little bit. And he has a very pleasant and low-key delivery and demeanor, but has very strong conservative principles. The left, of course, is already attacking him. Uh, I mean, they've been attacking Democrats, Democrats have been attacking Republicans really in three sections ever since 2020, right? Uh, that Republicans want to undermine elections in some way. You know, that, that somehow the that Republicans are doing things to make it so people can't vote, which has not been proven to be the case anywhere, but that's their talking point. Of course, the, uh, the Dobbs decision about abortion, I think it was clear that a lot of Republicans were flat-footed with that and did not have good answers when they were pressed on them, and that was used against them by the left. And then, of course, the usual that's been going on for a long time, that Republicans want to do away with uh, Social Security and Medicare. They want to, you know, push Grandma off the off the top of the mountain, and uh, that's it. Well... What they do is they mischaracterize efforts in that particular area by Republicans, conservatives to try and save these programs, and to not and, and the the plans that they have do not hinder people that are already in these programs. What they're trying to do is get so these programs in some of a viable way 
without having to just raise the amount of money we're taking from people that are still working. I mean, we've been through these figures before about how many people were, you know, working when we instituted Social Security for every person who was getting Social Security and how now we're down to just two or three people working for everybody's receiving that. So we've got to do something with it. And one of the things that they've come up with, of course, is to uh, start raising the retirement age that you can receive full benefits and take it from, you know, even now we have that. I mean, depending on when you're born, there, there's, there's a bit of a slide in there, you know, 66 versus 65. And what they'd like to raise it is to 69. Now, I know a lot of people are thinking, oh, geez, here I was counting on retiring when I was 65 or 66 and a half or whatever. And now they want to slide it up to 69. Well, people are living a lot longer and they're receiving benefits a lot longer. And that's a good thing. I mean, we don't want, pay, we want people to live longer. And by the way, in this country, we've been seeing our average age that we reach going down. I mean, I think the average age now is 73. If you look at, if you throw in all of the causes of death, and of course, a lot of that has to do with drug overdoses, suicides. Some of these drug overdoses are essentially suicides, even if they didn't start off that way. We have a huge problem with drugs and killing people. And that's pulling those numbers down. But nevertheless, if you look at the sort of financial arrangements, of Social Security and Medicare, something has to be done. The government has been looting those uh, lock boxes, as they refer to them, uh, that were supposed to be the investments of the government so that we would have plenty of money for the care and provision that we were promised to people. We've been doing it so long, there's just not that much left. So they're really hitting them on that. As another thing that, you know, Mike Johnson wants. And he also is a very devout Christian. He feels like he's grounded in uh, Christian principles. But he also says that he, he doesn't believe in imposing those on other people. But they take that out of context and essentially think that he's, you know, going to base his uh, entire uh, approach to governance on uh, forcing people to adhere to his beliefs, even no matter how many times he says that isn't true. And of course, he's an election denier, right? Because he thought there was maybe something wrong with the 2020 election, which, you know, there's a lot of weird stuff out there. However, there's no mention from the Democrats of all the people in their own party, and you guys know this, that, were, that thought there was something wrong with the 2016 election. Tons of people. Hillary Clinton for one of them. Hakeem Jeffries for another one of them. And I, somebody would ask Al Gore if he still thought that the election in 20. Uh, 2000, rather, was exactly right. I bet he doesn't still to this day. Anyway, folks, stay positive, pay attention to what's going on, and just keep your head high.